Hello, America. I'm Brian Hollihan, 16-year-old conservative commentator, founder and editor-in-chief of the Truth Gazette. I'm joined today by a friend of mine. He's a host. You might recognize him. Uh, he hosts the Michael Noel Show. He's an incredible intellect, does an incredible job commentating on American politics. The midterms just happened last week. I was trying to you know, pull an interview together, and I said, who better to come on and talk about what went wrong and what went right in the country than none other than the one, the only, Mr. Michael Noel's Michael Welcome to the program, it's great to have you here. Brian, it's great to be with you again. Uh, I tell you, after the midterms, and we're now speaking on a Monday right before President Trump's uh, likely announcement that he's running for president, it is so good to be speaking to uh, one of the most serious journalists in America. The <laughs> fact that you are half the age of most journalists, I think, uh, only speaks to how far they have fallen and what a great job you do. So I'm honored to be here. Well, I appreciate that, Michael. It's great to have you on. You know, I guess the first time we met was about this time last year at Liberty University. Uh, you, you spoke there. I met you in the green room backstage. Uh, and we said then we'd hope we could make an interview happen one day. Uh, about a month later, December of 2021, I did an interview with Ted Cruz. You covered it on your show. So I got shouted out on the Michael Nellis. My phone was blowing up that day. So, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm you know, getting talked about on the Michael Nellis show. That's insane. Uh, and then here we are, I'm interviewing the Michael Knowles himself. So it's it's great to be here. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Well, uh, now, obviously, there's a lot going on in, in politics. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, well, let's begin with the midterms. Let's talk about that, right? You know, banger right off the bat. The midterms are about a week ago almost. We still don't know the winner in some races. But overall, it was by no means a red tsunami. You know, Republicans, though, are still on track uh, to win the House. But we lost the Senate. Uh, we'll get you know into some races that went well in a second. But first, just a 30,000 feet overview here. What happened? What went wrong last Tuesday? Well, I can't help but notice that it was a red tsunami in certain states. And the states I'm thinking of are uh, Florida. Uh, states I'm thinking of include Texas, Ohio. Now, what unites these states? Obviously, Florida, you've got great leadership from Ron DeSantis, and he's being given a lot of credit, rightly so, for all the great things he's done in Florida and in getting voters to come out and support him. Uh, but Texas, too, you know, they've got uh, good stuff going on there, thanks to Greg Abbott and conservatives doing very well. Then you've got this kind of Trumpian figure who just won the Ohio Senate race. That would be J.D. Vance. And J.D. was a, a very important Trump endorsement because in that primary, you had conservatives uh, and establishment types alike endorsing other candidates. Uh, Josh Mandel was a big rival there. Trump comes out for J.D. Vance. J.D. wins the primary. He goes on to win the general election. Now, in other places, you look at uh, Nevada, Arizona, things don't go quite as well. I think we're almost done counting the votes. It's only been about four <laughs> or five days so far. Well, hopefully we can finish counting the votes for the midterms before the presidential election in 2024. Hopefully, but hopefully. I it seems to me that the big uh, difference here is that Florida, Texas, and Ohio instituted voter integrity measures after uh, 2020, after the debacle of that election, and some of the other states did not. So I know there's a big push right now, the kind of consensus view on the left and even many quarters of the, of the right is that people who tied themselves to Trump lost and the people who ran away from Trump won. I think that's absurd, and I think you, you, just J.D. Vance alone, I think, would dispel that theory. Um, and, and by the way, Ron DeSantis would dispel that theory because Ron DeSantis was a Trump pick in 2018, and uh, Trump helped him get through that primary, and rightly so, because DeSantis has been a great governor. I think election integrity is a really big issue. I think the longer it takes to count the votes, 
I think the less inclined people ought to be to trust the results of those elections. I think uh, obviously there have been some shenanigans, the machines breaking in Maricopa County very conveniently, the uh, security cameras going down at the ballot counting stations in Washoe County in Nevada in the middle of the night from 1130 until 730 in the morning. Uh, it's it's shenanigans and uh, that it's not a conspiracy theory to suggest as much. I mean, this is politics. That's what happens. That's why we have election integrity measures to begin with. And so DeSantis and Abbott and DeWine and these guys were very smart to implement voter integrity measures. And if Republicans want to do better in Arizona and Nevada and elsewhere, we're going to have to push for that as well. No, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, you know, this morning, several outlets officially reported that the you know Republicans were on track to flip the House. Uh, that's great news. Uh, Republicans can now block you know, Biden's agenda, start investigative committees, have subpoena power. Uh, I mean, you know, a majority is a majority, but that in the House, as you know, it takes 218 to have a majority. The current projections, Republicans have around 219 seats. Um, the Democrats will have 216. What's your reaction to that? Oh, it's pathetic. I mean, Lauren Boebert's seat should not have been that close, and I, I hope Lauren pulls it out. Probably that that is going to go to court, and there's probably going to be recounts. We've now got to hold on to our hopes in California to uh, to retake the House. That's not a good position to be in. Uh, there were some really important flips. I'm thinking in particular of New York 17. This would be actually my old district that I grew up mm. in. And uh, I, I worked on the campaign. I was uh, one of the guys running the campaign that lost to Sean Maloney, who was the Democrat who took it. I was also on the campaign that won the seat away from a Democrat the first time. But this was a swing district. It's kind of a bellwether for the country. And it was notable in particular because Sean Maloney was the head of the DCCC, which is the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee. So the man who was in charge of Democrat congressional strategy couldn't even keep his own seat which was personally very satisfying for me, and I think tells you something about the Democrats' uh, uh, strategies. So they did not very well in talking to voters on on dining room table issues. You know, I'm thinking of crime, the economy, foreign policy, immigration. They got a little bit of a boost on abortion that does seem, contrary to what the polls were telling us, that does seem to have motivated some young voters. Again, I'm willing to take that hit. If overruling Roe v. Wade and saving hundreds of thousands of babies a year means we lose a few congressional seats, or rather we just don't pick up as many as we hoped that we would have, fine by me, that's a small price to pay. Uh, but I, I really do think that where Republicans got outfoxed was on the rigging. You know, <laughs> the, the Democrats rig the elections and then they brag about rigging the elections in Time Magazine after 2020. There was a very long article about that. Uh, and uh, But they're very good at ballot harvesting. They're very good at having dead people vote. Uh, just today, a, a listener to my show wrote in and said, Michael, I'm very upset because my father voted in this election and he died some time ago. And I thought it was a joke. But the listener said, no, 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 I, I called the Secretary of State. My, my dead father voted in 2020, and I, I said this was fraud, take him off the rolls, and I went through a whole process, submitted forms. They said he would be off the rolls. Then there was a glitch, I guess, and he voted again in 2022. So we know this sort of thing happens. I mean, maybe most famously, uh, one of the stolen elections in American history was the 1948 Texas Senate race that LBJ was running in, and in that race, uh, he took advice from FDR, who told him it's not enough just to campaign, you've got to sit on the ballot box. And he did stuff a ballot box, and it put him just over the threshold. The case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't want to hear it and claimed that it didn't have jurisdiction. Does this sound familiar? You know, history repeats itself. 
and we're having deja vu all over again. And so as a consequence of this, LBJ enters the Senate, becomes vice president, becomes the president after Kennedy dies. And we all find out about the fraud in 1990 when Robert Caro published his magisterial biography of it. Well, LBJ was dead by that point. Not only was he not in office, but he was dead. And so listen, all of that means we know that this sort of stuff does happen. Nobody has faith in the electoral system anymore. The Democrats don't have faith in it. They believe that it's rigged. Well, one, because they rig it, but two, because they think that Republicans are not legitimate participants in our sacred democracy. Joe Biden himself says that we're an existential threat to the Republic, just our, our mere existence. Uh, and, and also the Democrats claim that when Republicans win, it's because we suppress their votes. And the Republicans don't believe in the electoral system because the Democrats changed all the rules using COVID as an excuse and then bragged about how they rigged it. So, you know, this is a problem. I, I don't want to seem like I'm making some hack sort of partisan uh, excuses for why we lost. Uh, where election integrity was taken seriously, we won. Uh, where election integrity was not taken seriously, we lost. And even if you're a Democrat, though you have very little electoral incentive to, to fix the system, you have to at least admit that that nobody really believes that the system is is behaving as it should. And so I think that's how you explain it. And given all of that, I'm not holding my breath on these California congressional races. Yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Drinking some leftist tears there, I see. Uh, you know, despite some unfortunate races, as you noted, Republicans still overperformed in certain you know parts of the country. They flipped several seats as well. Uh, for example, for the first time in over two decades, Miami-Dade flipped red. That was historic. Now, I'm a big data guy, and after elections, always looking at the breakdown of the results that we get. Uh, in Miami-Dade specifically, more Republicans voted early than Democrats. A big shift from 2018, according to their county election department there in Miami-Dade. Uh, you know, looking to the future for Republicans, do we need to reshift our focus to spend more time encouraging early voting uh, and other methods that Democrats, you know, historically have an, a monopoly on? It's a yes and. I think in the long run, we need to curtail early voting because it's just totally open for fraud. I mean, things like extending election day to election month and encouraging widespread mail-in ballots, the, these are tactics that necessarily open themselves up to fraud because there just aren't enough eyeballs to watch the system the whole time. Barack Obama admitted this 10 years ago. Uh, so that's gotta be the long-term strategy. In the short term, however, you gotta play the hand that you're dealt. And so if we are dealing with early voting, then we can't just let the Democrats go out and collect all the ballots from the nursing homes and wherever else they're going to get their ballots. We need to do that as well. And so we are at an, an disadvantage from the matter of perception as well, because we rightly acknowledge that early voting is quite suspect. And so we Republicans don't wanna engage in it, but you've got to play the, the the cards that you are dealt. And, and so I just think it, we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot if we, if we don't go along and uh, try to collect some of those early votes, even if at the same time we are campaigning to curtail that period. I mean, it's, it reminds me of the Democrats who always whine and say, well, you know, Hillary won the popular vote in 2016, so she's the real president. You say, well, that's all well and good. I've got a pet goldfish named Sam, but that doesn't really <laughs> affect the race. You know, that's, that's not how the rules are played. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we can acknowledge that reality and use it to our advantage and then still seek a longer term solution that would reduce the, the, the incidence of that. 
Thank you. Absolutely right. I agree with you there. You know, every Democrat from Joe Biden to Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton to Kamala, they went on the campaign trail proclaiming that democracy was at stake last Tuesday. Uh, because I guess if Republicans won, we, you know, the party that believes that people should have more control over the government was just going to throw democracy out the window entirely. Does that completely sound like us? Am I right? Uh, you know, Michael Knowles, now that Republicans have the majority in the House, is democracy dead? Oh, of course, the, their version of democracy <laughs> is dead. It, it is kind of odd that they're, they are claiming that democracy faces an existential threat from the majority of people, you know, that because last, I don't know, I look in the dictionary, I've got a very old school dictionary, and it says that <laughs> democracy is government uh, of the people and by the people and for the people. And so uh, what what the majority of people vote for that is the expression of democracy. But that's not what the liberals mean by democracy. What the liberals mean by democracy is liberalism. And uh, many conservatives misunderstand this too, but, uh, but they're, they're very different things. I mean, a democracy can elect uh, Donald Trump, but that's a threat to democracy. A democracy can elect Viktor Orban in Hungary. A democracy can elect Georgia Maloney in Italy. A democracy can vote for Brexit in the United Kingdom. And yet every time that, that those conservative governments or initiatives have been elected, uh, we are told by the establishment that this is a threat to democracy. What they are after is liberalism and what they have shown is they are perfectly willing to suppress democracy if it poses a threat to liberalism. And so I think, I think uh, conservatives need to wise up to that fact. And, and we, I think we also need to stop taking their semantic bait as though they're making the, the argument in good faith. They're not. They hate us. They call us fascists. They call us Nazis. They say we're an existential threat to the republic. It's not just fringe people on MSNBC doing that. It's the president of the United States. That's coming from Joe Biden. And so we need to say, uh, no, we don't like your liberalism. We want to get rid of it. And we, the people, are going to exercise whatever political power we still have in this system, which, by the way, is not a democracy. The founding fathers despised democracy. The word appears nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere in the Declaration. It does appear in the Federalist Papers. Every single time it is invoked, it is invoked with disapproval. <laughs> okay, And, and so uh, the, what the framers of our Constitution gave us was a kind of mixed regime with a monarchical element in the executive and an aristocratic element in the Senate and elsewhere, and obviously a strong democratic representation too. The way our government works today is very different than Schoolhouse Rock and the bill up on Capitol <laughs> Hill. And you know what we have today is in some ways more akin to an oligarchy. There are many more interests and powers that are controlling our elections. Just look at big tech controlling the public square in a self-government. That means you control basically the whole political order, and that's just one example. And so we have to recognize that the demos, the people, uh, is just one part of a, a larger political system. I think the people broadly are on our side, and I think we need to be able to wield and channel that power for justice and for good government but recognizing we are taking on a lot of other entrenched and very, very powerful interests, they're gonna to try to thwart it. And they're gonna thwart it, ironically, in the name of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we just finished up the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, we're about to kick off 2024 tomorrow. Do you think more young people should get involved in politics or run for office? That depends who the young people are, my friend. You know, if you told me that you were gonna run for office tomorrow, I'd say, where do I write the check? <laughs> if, uh, you know, some, I don't know, purple haired classmate of yours of ambiguous gender, you know, uh, wearing all sorts of bizarre kind of clothing said that he, she, they, them wanted to run for office, I would probably discourage that. Uh, you know, 
in some ways, I, I feel you have to put a disclaimer out to your listeners because you happen to be quite knowledgeable and serious about politics and you know quite polished. This is not true for 99.9% of young people, certainly for 16 year olds. And something I, I often recommend to young people who ask me, Michael, I'm, you know, I'm 12 and I wanna get involved. When can I run for president? I say, well, you gotta wait till 35 at least for that one. But uh, anyway, there's other things you can do in the meantime. I often recommend that young people read a lot and write for free and practice writing and maybe don't even publish it. Maybe just kind of practice writing because to write is to think, which is why it's so difficult. And, but to read a lot and to talk to people and have really robust debates and not just robust debates with your socialist, abortion loving, crazy lesbian you know, cousin, but also robust debates with fellow conservatives because you really need to hone what you believe. Politics it really cannot be reduced to five bullet points on a napkin. And unfortunately, a lot of people, especially when they're young, and I include myself in this, we, we fall into that kind of trap. Uh, so it, it especially now when it's so easy to gain notoriety so quickly and at basically whatever age you want to. I think that the more difficult but edifying thing to do is to kind of push pause and don't just go viral on TikTok for having some hot take about socialism or whatever, but actually figure out what you think. Take your opponent's arguments quite seriously, uh, grow a little bit, and, and that way you won't embarrass yourself <laughs> on the national stage. And especially when people are talking about running for office, it helps to make a little money first because, uh, I mean, this is really one of the great strengths from Trump. Trump never had to dial for dollars. He's raised plenty of money. The man's never going to turn down money, though he did turn down his, his uh, salary in the Oval Office. But he raised money for the campaign. Um, but he, he didn't really need to. The guy was a self-funder. And so nobody could push him around. If you come into politics without a, a dime to your name, then you're going to be dialing for dollars and you're going to just be more susceptible to outside influences that are going to essentially erase whatever kind of identity and vision you may have had in politics. So I, I'd say build yourself up first, physically, financially, philosophically, theologically, spiritually, everything in the middle, and uh, then get involved. And you, you could probably do a lot more good that way. Well, well, speaking of Donald Trump, he's expected to announce his run for president tomorrow night at eight o'clock at Mar-a-Lago, nine o'clock Eastern. Uh, you know, in the past few weeks, sparks have been flown between Trump and other potential 2024 candidates. What are your thoughts on Trump running for office again in 2024 and the slate of other potential candidates as we go into that race? I think I am the last conservative pundit in America, maybe the last conservative public figure, period, who isn't angry that Trump is probably going to <laughs> run again. I, everyone else seems to be furious about this, and many people are, are actively campaigning for Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis is great. He's certainly the best governor in the country right now. He might be the best governor of my lifetime. I, I really, really like the guy. However, we have a primary process for a reason. Primary process is where you go out and you throw punches and you get bloodied up a little bit and you get, you get fortified for a general election campaign. We don't generally just anoint people, especially in the Republican Party. That is not how this thing works. And so I think Ron DeSantis, he's a big boy. He's a tough guy. He can take a punch. And if he can't take a punch, then he shouldn't be the nominee anyway. And Donald Trump, he's a big boy and he can take a punch too. And, and so I, I think that's uh, just fine. Ron DeSantis has a bit of a challenge right now, which is he is the leading non-Trump candidate. 
Trump still has a huge lead in the polls, but DeSantis is jumping. Uh, Trump seems to be somewhat limited on where he can go in terms of his favorables. He, he, he's just pretty consistent around 48. DeSantis went from 8% a year ago, a year and a half ago, to now about 26%. Uh, today. So, you know, he, it, it seems like sky's the limit for him. The problem for DeSantis is that his sales pitch is as Trump 2.0, Trump with all the positives, none of the negatives, you know, no, none of the baggage. He is the bigger, bigger, better, faster, stronger, younger, hotter, whatever Trump. However, because Trump is in this race, which is kind of unusual because he was a one-term president who's seeking the, the nomination again, DeSantis necessarily is in the anti-Trump lane in the race. This is a huge tension because on the one hand, DeSantis is going to be able to say, I'm more right-wing than Trump. I'm crazier than that guy was. I was more <laughs> correct on COVID or whatever his pitch is going to be. But DeSantis is going to be the most attractive candidate to all the squishes and all the never Trumpers and all the liberal, <laughs> liberal Republicans. So he's going to attract the establishment types. He's going to attract the Bushies. He's going to attract the Lincoln Project types. And that's through no fault of his own, but he's going to have to figure out how to define his candidacy when he's being pulled pretty strongly in two directions. Now, if multiple people run, if Donald Trump does not clear the field, then you're probably going to get other candidates too. Then you're probably going to get Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, maybe Josh Hawley. I mean, you, you, you could end up with a lot of people on that stage. And all I will say is, do not count Trump out. You know, he's a little bit older. He got bloodied up, especially in that last year of his presidency. The guy is an American original. He's a total phenomenon. He, I've, I've never seen anything like him. It may be in all of American politics. I mean, certainly- <laughs> In, in my lifetime. And so if you think he's done, I, I'm, I'm not convinced of that. And you're going to hear a lot of arguments over the midterms. This is why I think there's a concerted effort to blame the midterm disappointment on Trump, which I don't think is particularly fair, although you know there's, there's some case to be made. But the reason for that is that the 2022 midterms today, as they have always been, are not really about the Senate and it's not really about the House. It's about 2024, and it was all a kind of thinly veiled puppet show for what was going to happen in 2024, and and the 2024 election has now begun. Yeah, yeah, it's time to buckle up and get ready. It'll be an interesting show to watch. Uh, you know, switching tables here a little bit, Elon Musk, he's now the CEO of Twitter for about two weeks now. In those two weeks, we've seen incredible growth uh, on Twitter, and you know, it's, it's going pretty good for him so far. He's making a lot of changes. What is your advice to Elon Musk as he tries to go and save Twitter? I am attracted to these kind of agents of chaos who break up the tired and dusty political status quo. This is why I have a soft spot for Donald Trump and Elon is a, a very Trumpian figure in his own right. Elon Musk has largely destroyed Twitter already, which I think is probably a good thing. Uh, you know, he, he lifted some of the censorship from the moment the Elon deal went through over the course of about four or five days, I think I gained like 80,000 followers on Twitter. Wow. And, and I clearly had been shadow banned at, at different points of having my Twitter. And you could just see it in the growth and the engagement and all the rest of it. People saying, Michael, your tweets don't show up for me anymore. I can't even search you. So all of that, I'm really glad that he did that. And then what Elon Musk did was he destroyed the verification process. And it 
it actually tells you a lot about the whole country. That little blue check mark is supposed to verify that you are who you are. It exists because if you're a public figure, people impersonate you and so you wanna know who the real, who's the real Slim Shady, please stand up. So now this started to weaken around 2017, 2018 when a white identitarian uh, politics type, this guy Richard Spencer, uh, really irritated everybody. And so Twitter took away his check mark. And I thought this was very strange at the time. I said, you, you might not like the guy, but did he cease to be Richard Spencer? And why are you <laughs> taking away, is he someone else now? Is it invasion of the body snatchers? And what Twitter was acknowledging then was that the check mark is not merely for verification, but it connotes a kind of prestige and it gives you certain privileges. And they, they were going to take this away because Richard Spencer is a white supremacist. Now Elon has accelerated that process and he says, the, the check mark is not only a mark of, not only not about verification, it's not about that at all. It's not only a mark of privilege. If you pay $8, you too can have that. So it's this rapidly uh, democratizing force, which I get a real kick out of. Uh, it, it's cost Eli Lilly a ton of money as its stock price fell because of a fake verified account. You're now seeing, including some friends of mine who are being spoofed with verified accounts saying all sorts of terrible things to one another. So it's it's very, very funny. Uh, though it, it's, it's really shaken up the company. Uh, so I'm here for it. I think it's great. I think Musk has been a huge improvement to Twitter. Uh, but can Twitter survive this kind of madness in the long run? That remains to be seen. I, you know, the shelf life of tech companies is not necessarily all that long. And uh, if Twitter was already on the way out and Elon just uh, gives it a sort of blaze of glory in the end, I think that would be hilarious. It would, but we're going to definitely watch that as well. I finally got my blue check mark. I had to pay my $8 for it, but I did. Twitter would never verify me. I tried like 20,000 times. You know, let's do it every 30 days and I'll keep reapplying and reapplying. I even talked to people I knew at Twitter. Oh, well, we just, we can't confirm that you're why I send in my driver's license. I mean, is that not proof that I'm real? I mean, missing my blood type in. Like, what do you want me to do here? So, it's you know, amazing we, we, too that, that you weren't verified because, uh, you know, I think of so many journalists with less of a following than you have and much less credibility <laughs> Some of whom work for CNN, who they got their blue check marks. You know, you absolutely should have gotten yours in uh, in Elon Musk's true democracy. You know, I'm I'm glad that uh, you, you were able to finally get it. <laughs> what I should have done, I guess I should have just clipped on that video of Michael Knowles talking about me on the show and emailed it to Twitter and been like, hey, look, I'm real. Michael Knowles knows who I am. We should have done that, but maybe, maybe that's next the, time. That's the demarcator of reality, actually. They might take it away now, yeah. <laughs> Well, wrapping up here today, you know, you're pretty famously a religious person. You're fairly open about your faith. Uh, you know, looking at America right now, taking a step back, do you think religious freedoms are under attack in our current day? Yes, religious freedoms certainly are, though it, it's got a deeper source. It's not merely that the mean old atheist libs are trying to, you know, ship us all off to the gulags, though they are. That is also <laughs> happening. But it's, it's because even the very idea of religious freedom can undermine itself in the same way that free speech can undermine itself. Uh, it, it requires something solid to stand on. And uh, so in America, that traditionally had been understood as a freedom of religion is not freedom from religion. Uh, there, there is this silly idea now that America was founded as a secular liberal democracy. Again, that is just complete nonsense that those ideas weren't even really floated until the middle of the 20th century and they didn't gain currency until the 80s. America was founded as a Christian nation and uh, 
there's one line in the Treaty of Tripoli signed by John Adams. So it was written by Joel Barlow, who's a Jeffersonian Republican diplomat, which said America's in no way a Christian nation. Uh, but that was nonsense. I mean, that was that was just a diplomatic uh, cable to placate Muslim pirates who were impressing American <laughs> sailors. But when John Adams was writing in his own words, he said, America is founded on Christian principles. That's the only thing that united the founding fathers. And John Jay went even further and he said, we're so blessed to be a Christian nation and we basically should only elect Christians in the country. And even Jefferson, who was pretty lib by the standards of his day, uh, he, he gave quite a lot of uh, reverence toward Christianity. And so you look even to John Locke, whose role in the founding of America, I think has been overstated by the liberals of the 20th century. But even John Locke in the letter concerning toleration, he says that uh, uh, we need to tolerate everybody and have a lot of toleration and let people talk and everything, except for atheists. They are to be in no ways tolerated because you can't trust a damn word that they say. And uh, so that was John Locke. I mean, that's the father of liberalism for goodness sakes. And uh, we would have to agree on certain fundamental things. We would have to agree at least that God exists and that God has a certain character to him uh, in order for there even to be such a thing as, as religious freedom. Religious freedom doesn't make sense if you don't accept that. In the same way that freedom of speech doesn't make any sense if you don't have a common language and you don't have a common understanding of obscenity and taboo and standards and norms. You know, that, the, the, the things that are off limits are what permit you to have a broad array of things that are on limits. And that's true of speech and that's true of religion. So yes, it's under threat, but it, it's, uh, as, as Tocqueville predicted in Democracy in America, the, the country, he actually predicted that the country would become Catholic or abandon Christianity altogether, uh, which is kind of surprising in a country that we broadly consider to be Protestant. But you can kind of see that happening now. There is a major movement, certainly away from the mainline Protestant churches. Those have all been emptied out, and I think they just hold drag queen story hours in them now. And so people have gone in some, in some cases to sort of non-denominational evangelical churches. But there's been a large movement toward Catholic and Orthodox churches. Uh, especially among younger people. And the reason for that is that uh, young people are seeking truth, you know, and, and so the, the kind of uh, soapy uh, religion that has predominated in America for a long time is, is ultimately not going to be satisfying. You know, ideas have consequences. We have to follow them to their logical conclusions. And so you're either going to end up in a kind of weak materialism or Gnosticism that you see in transgenderism, or you're going to end up in a, a more orthodox understanding of religion. And I think there are a lot of people right now who are not theological scholars, who are not uh, you know, naturally inclined toward this sort of stuff, but who look around and they say, you know, I, I see my generation, they're mutilating themselves, they're, they're all on depression drugs, they're all miserable, they're joining these insane causes like BLM and Antifa. And if that's the consequence of atheism, I then get me out of there, okay? <laughs> I want the alternative. And so I'm quite hopeful. I mean, I think hope is, is a theological fact and virtue. And so I think we're ordered to it. And I think it's the only rational position to hold. I think that America will come back to a reasonable sense of, uh, of religion because the alternative is going to just be some other weird religion. You know, it's gonna be Reiki and crystals and yoga <laughs> and you know, astrology and all that kind of silliness. And uh, ultimately that's not going to be 
very satisfying. And, and uh, we might have to wait for some of the age of Aquarius boomers to uh, give way in the political scene <laughs> to the younger people. But I, I think the younger people broadly are, are more on the right track. Well, I hope you're right. Well, I appreciate you doing this today, Michael Knowles. Thank you for taking the time to come on and do this real quick. I know you're very busy We're right after the midterms we're in between the 2022 cycle and kicking off the 24 cycle. So I appreciate you taking the time. Keep drinking them leftist tears and enjoy this cool weather out there, getting ready for the, the holiday season. And I appreciate you doing this with us. Really, really, really fun time. Well, the pleasure is all mine and keep up the great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a great day.